Please take a copy of God's Word. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, we've been looking at what's been called the fifth gospel, uh, the evangelical prophet, uh, Isaiah's prophecy. And um, as we turn to Isaiah 55, just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find it on the inside cover of your bulletin. You can also uh, find one of the pew Bibles. The hymnals are red. The pew Bibles are black. Uh, we don't have pews. We have chairs. You get the idea. And um, without further ado, let's look <clears throat> to God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me here, that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn <clears throat> shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word this morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. It's an offer you can't refuse, but somehow some do. Some refuse. One Isaac Watts hymn says, Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? It's the choice to come to God's feast. And some power is compelling him to make this choice. So he's overwhelmed with gratitude. And yet there are some that refuse. They make a wretched choice. They would rather starve than come. How can they do that? How can they turn down this offer, this invitation? 
Because what is God offering? I'd call this invitation generous, mysterious, sovereign. God will do what he wants. What he wants will be accomplished. And it's also joyful. Those are going to be our four points today. Four reasons that this is an offer. An offer that is truly one that you cannot refuse. That phrase, of course, is from a famous movie. Not that I'm recommending or endorsing that movie because I would never do that. That'd be crazy. It's crazy is turning down this offer. It's crazy is passing on this invitation, this offer, because it's an offer you can't refuse. Because it is, first of all, a generous invitation. A generous invitation. Verses one through five. Read verse one with me. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come. Repeated several times, this invitation, a command, yes, but a kind command. And Jesus would echo these words, come to me all you who are weary, Matthew 6, 28. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, John 7, 37, as well as the final words, final chapter of Revelation. He is calling the needy, the thirsty, those who are aware of their need, the poor and the destitute, those who have no money. And he's offering not just water, but milk, even wine, some of the luxuries of life. If you're poor, spiritually or otherwise, if you're needy, if you're thirsty, then listen to what Jesus says. He's offering a luxurious feast to the poor. But I'm not poor, you might be thinking. I'm not poor. I'm not poor in spirit, whatever that meant when you mentioned that last week. Not poor. Oh, good. Because verse 2 is for you. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Oh yes, the poor need the generous invitation and so do those who've chosen poorly. Who spend their fortune on junk food. Who pig out on candy. Wonder why they're, why they're still hungry. Why their stomach aches. Kids, I promise I am not only picking on you. <clears throat> See, being a grown-up is no guarantee that you make good choices. Tom Brady and his wife, supermodel Giselle Bunchen, I think that's how you say her name, recently announced the end of their marriage. I felt weirdly sad about that. I wondered why. I was texting a friend. I said, I know money can't buy happiness, but I don't like to admit it. And when the superstar quarterback and his supermodel wife, who is even richer than him, get divorced, kind of confirms the true and lasting happiness can't be found on this earth alone. Happiness can't be bought. Now, maybe you think I'm being way too philosophical about pop culture. Fine. Maybe Dr. Derek Thomas's commentary will hit you from a different angle. <clears throat> For some of us, he says, there is a nagging sense that something is missing, even if we can't quite put our finger on what that is. Assuming that satisfaction is possible, we join the rest of the secular world by riding the treadmill of ac acquisition, jobs, stuff, and sex. 
And as long as we think that eventually with better jobs, stuff, and sex, that satisfaction will be realized, we are far too busy to notice how discontented we actually are. We are still chasing the dream, he says. Whether you're poor and you know it, <clears throat> poor and destitute in the righteousness that God requires, or whether you're rich and deluded, disappointed, despairing about the happiness that someone sold you, what do you truly need? Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Last chapter touched on various biblical covenants, and here is that theme again, because what is the Bible? What is God's story of redemption except a series of unfolding and successive covenants with, a with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and David, the promise of a new covenant? What is it except for God's one overarching covenant of grace? One story of the great snake crusher who would come and save us from all our sin and sorrow. And Isaiah says this covenant story, it hinges on this everlasting covenant with David. Elder Josh Drake taught about this a year ago in Sunday school about Psalm 89, 2 Samuel 7 and more. Can't go into all of it right now, but we see here that David, or one of his successors, will be a witness to the peoples, the Gentiles, the whole world, it says in verse 4. Nations they haven't even heard of, verse 5, will flow to the people of God because of David's work. And this Davidic king, we're starting to see, he must be this Messiah. He, he resembles this servant of Isaiah 42 and following, the one who suffers in Isaiah 53, who atones for his people's sins, who makes these global blessings possible. Because he has paid for our sins, he can offer us water, wine, and milk for free. Because he's accomplished this salvation, he can apply it to us for free. He can invite us to the feast. For free. Of course, some of us are too proud for a handout. I don't need that. Pay my own way. Is that because you're too busy to see how discontented you really are? Are you really as rich, as capable, as content as you think? Haven't you been waiting for someone to say these words to you? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Isn't this such a generous invitation? Isn't it an offer you can't refuse? And it's also, secondly, a mysterious invitation. A mysterious invitation. Verses 6 through 9. There's a free feast, and this offer is both for those who know their need and for those who've deluded themselves, who think they have it all, who desperately, maybe unconsciously, are trying to suppress their discontent. There's a free feast, and there's a renewed invitation to it here in verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord. 
while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What does this feast represent? God invites us to a feast, a free feast with water, wine, and milk. But he's ultimately calling us to himself. You see that, right? Verse 3, come to me. Verse 6, seek the Lord, call upon him. Verse 7, let the wicked return to the Lord and to our God. God himself is where we find the rich feast, boundless mercy and compassion, abundant pardon, overflowing grace. As we said last week, there is more grace in Christ than there is need in us. But why? Why would God set his grace on someone such as I, and you know, even if I'm pretty good, then that just invites another question. Why would God let the people who aren't as good as me, why would he let the wicked, verse 7, come and find grace? Isn't that mysterious? Are the wicked good enough for this privilege, this generous invite, this mysterious invite? If the wicked aren't good enough, then all of us are in trouble because we were all once dead in our sins and transgressions, Ephesians 2 says. But still, why? Why is God so good to the undeserving? That same Isaac Watts hymn says, While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? And as we said earlier, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? Why? Why? Verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Have we forgotten that we are the creation, not the creator? See, this is, as someone says, not a statement about logic, as if we abandon logic when we think of God. It is a statement about our finiteness as creatures. Can something be true, even if finite little me doesn't fully understand it? It may be that I need to repent of my preconceived ideas about God, the world, and salvation, and bring my thoughts in conformity with his thoughts. And we do that not by abandoning logic, but by repentance. Why would I think anything less than repentance was required to understand the mind of God? If I am both finite and fallen before I come to Christ, then why wouldn't I see the need, expect the need for repentance? Another author says it this way. If you don't trust the Bible, God's word enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, How could you ever have a personal relationship with God? Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you've gotten a hold of the real God? Now, I'm not sure that outrage should be a part of a healthy marriage. (laughs) Maybe challenge, maybe struggle, maybe even debate, but I like the rest of the quote. But his invitation, the Lord's invitation to us is generous. It's also mysterious, confounding, 
overturning our expectations about what it means to be good and deserving. As I said to someone as we were bantering right before the service, no one is good but God alone. And so we need to repent if we want to enter the kingdom of God and if we want to conform our thoughts to his. You see that repentance earlier in this passage, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, let him forsake his thoughts. And when you combine it with verse 6, seek the Lord, call upon him, you see both faith and repentance. The two wings by which a saint flies to heaven, said Thomas Watson, turning from sin, turning to Jesus. In a sense, there's also two mysteries, two mysteries to this invitation. The first one, we spent time talking about how can our God be so good to people who are so bad? How can he accept me just as I am? And the second mystery, what will I look like when he's done with me? Now, maybe number two isn't quite as big of a mystery because we have hints. We have hints that the God who accepts me just as I am will not leave me just as I am. No. In the process of all this, through the Holy Spirit, through the renewal of my will, I will forsake my wicked ways and thoughts, and I will grab hold of Christ, walking in his ways, thinking his thoughts after him, delighting in his path. Duty turns to delight when I enter into the mystery of God's grace. Again, isn't this simply an offer that you can't refuse? It's a generous invitation, and it's also a mysterious invitation. And thirdly, it is a sovereign invitation. A sovereign invitation. Verses 10 and 11. I mean that it's a sovereign invitation. What God wants to accomplish in this, he will accomplish. He is both gracious and inviting. He is also mysterious, both in why he would be so good to us and in the way he operates. Let's talk about the way he operates. Why do you... What do you see about God's ways here? Look at verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God compares his word to Rain and snow. Rain and snow don't return to God. They accomplish a purpose somewhere else. That purpose is the growing, the sprouting of plants to provide food on earth. I wonder if Paul thought of this verse when he wrote, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. But how is God's word like rain and snow? Well, one, it accomplishes a purpose. It causes growth in new life to spring up, doesn't it? But not always, right? I mean, sometimes God's word goes forth and it doesn't lead to salvation and new life. The Bible doesn't say that everyone will be saved. It is clear. Some will reject God forever. Some will rebel until the end. And while society might debate what is and isn't evil and whether God's word is the right standard to measure it, most of the world believes in evil, and wants to see evil punished. Don't believe me? Just get on Twitter or a hundred other social media platforms. But good news. 
Isaiah and the rest of scripture says God will punish evil in the end. Those who don't repent, those who refuse the offer, they will be punished. They will wish they didn't refuse the offer they couldn't refuse. Some of you might be wondering, does Matt realize what happens after that famous quote in that famous movie? Does he realize that it's less of a bribe, an incentive, an inducement, and it's actually more of a threat, an offer you can't refuse? I do. That's why I'm using it. You see, on the one hand, the gospel's offer of salvation, the free offer of forgiveness of sins, the life more abundant and free through faith in Christ, it's an offer that's too good to be true. The usual sense of an offer you can't refuse, too good to pass up. But some do refuse. For them, God has a response. He promises judgment, the, the, the not-so-great sense of the offer you can't refuse. It's equally this is equally true. God promises pardon to those who repent and return to him. And he promises punishment for those who make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. And in both instances, God is true to his character. In both instances, God's purpose succeeds. To some, his gospel is the aroma of life. To others, it's the aroma of death. In both instances. God's purpose succeeds and he is glorified. But let's focus again on the first part for a moment because the Bible, it talks about God's calling in at least two ways. In one sense, the offer goes out to all. We plant seeds, we water them, we share the good news of the gospel where we live, we work, we play. And in another sense, the Bible speaks of a call that's downright magnetic that draws sinners to God so that they can find mercy and grace and healing. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, when God leaves the 99 to find the one lost sheep, he doesn't come back empty-handed. Not everyone will hear God's Call and follow him. But rest assured, when God wants to call someone, when he wants his word to sprout and grow in someone's life, then his word will accomplish its purpose. It will succeed. He will pursue. He will succeed. And from another perspective, unless he pursues us, we won't come to him. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4.19. No one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him, John 6, 44. In all this, God's invitation is ultimately a sovereign invitation. He accomplishes all that he wants, all that he purposes. And if you have ever fallen upon his mercy and grace, if you've ever answered his call, it's because he pursued you with all of his might. He invited you, and then he kept inviting you until you realize the generosity, the marvelous mystery, the overflowing grace of God. He invited you until you realized this is an offer I can't refuse. It is too good to be true. Not only is it a sovereign invitation, it is also, fourthly and finally, a joyful invitation. A joyful invitation. Verses 12 and 13. It's an invitation to joy. And it's given to a people without a lot of tangible joy in their lives. Remember the original audience. 
They're being invaded because of their rebellion against God. They're headed for exile. It is not a happy day. They were having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day every day. And God is inviting them into his joy. Isaiah 54, God promises that Zion, the city of God, codename for Jerusalem, Zion would be rebuilt, transformed, expanded around the whole world. And now in Isaiah 55, he says, in that new city, will be like one big feast for all the nations, for rich and poor alike, a feast that will be accomplished because of the final Davidic king, a feast of unbelievable joy, a feast you don't deserve, a feast you can't believe you're invited to. And God will do it. He will accomplish all of his purpose and it will be joyous. It will be like the curse of sin finally being rolled back. Verse 12 says, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Have you ever seen that before? Has anyone in history seen that before? So maybe Isaiah, probably, he must be looking forward to a new day. From Isaiah's perspective, the only thing that could have lived up to this would have been the return from exile, the ultimate homecoming that would happen years later. Of course, the return from exile was disappointing. We know now that the ultimate fulfillment of this can only be the day when God finally and fully redeems all of creation. When the creation who has grown will finally shout with joy. Look at verse 13. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thorns. They show up in Genesis 3. That's not exactly a happy note. Thorns and briars will give way to cypresses and myrtles. Cursed, fruitless vegetation will be replaced by blooms, blossoms, new life. When? When? When he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That has happened in part, of course, and his salvation blessings are still echoing around the globe. Do we realize that? Do we think about that enough? How far around the world the gospel has traveled, how it is doing that even now into places of the world that we might overlook. In Mark Knowles' 2009 book, The New Shape of World Christianity, he says the following, active Christian adherence has become more active in Africa than in Europe. The number of practicing Christians in China may be approaching the number in the United States. More Christian workers from Brazil are active in cross-cultural ministry outside their homeland than from Britain or Canada. And lastly, last Sunday, now this was in 2009, I think it's probably still true in 2022, last Sunday more Presbyterians were in church in Ghana than in Scotland, the birthplace of Presbyterianism. The church is growing globally. Aslan is on the move. His name, his character are being known. His name is becoming famous more than any athlete or actor. And all of this is a sign of 
God's covenant promises. A sign that signifies the seal that certifies as surely as we see this promise being fulfilled. We know that he is good. He is good to his word as surely as we taste the bread and the cup in a few moments. We can know that Christ loved us till the end. You can know that God himself has invited you into his joy. People once asked Martin Luther <clears throat> why he preached that simple gospel message so much. Perhaps you could ask me that too. Luther's reply was, because week after week you forget it. And one of my seminary professors said it a little differently. He told us we should preach the gospel every week. One, because non-Christians might be listening. Don't forget that. And two... Because Christians should love to hear the gospel. Because Christians should love to hear the gospel. Sort of covers every possible audience there, doesn't it? If you're running from God, then you need to come to the waters. If you're standing at a distance, you're still not sure, then you need to seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you already know, you already know God and you're quietly considering other options, other sources of joy because his joy has grown stale, because you're weary, because whatever, then wake up, forsake your wicked flirtatious ways with the world and return to him. Delight yourself in his rich food once again because this is an offer you can't refuse. And if you somehow do, I don't know what else to tell you, except maybe to say it again, one more time. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us delight ourselves in your rich food. And yes, we pray that we would savor every last morsel of the banquet, the feast that you've spread before us that we'll partake of in a moment. But we don't only mean that. Long after the aftertaste fades, would you help us to taste and see that you are good? Would you help us delight ourselves in you? Delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But as an old college friend once told me, make sure you're doing the first part first. Delight yourselves in the Lord. Delight yourselves in the Lord. Hear our prayers for Jesus' sake. We ask it. Amen.